0: Welcome to the Circular Economy podcast by the Ellen MacArthur Foundation.
1: Welcome to the Circular Economy show podcast where we dive into the detail of the stories and the people behind the stories on the frontier of the circular economy. I'm your host Seb and my co-host Laura is alongside me.
2: Thank you, Seb. This podcast is published by the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, where we develop and promote the idea of a circular economy engaged with key actors who can make it happen and also mobilize system solutions at scale. And we should remind our audience that we want them to join us every week as we share conversations we are having with the leaders and practitioners of the transition from linear to circular. And by the way, Seb, Happy New Year and Happy New Year to our listeners.
1: Yes, Happy New Year, Lara. Well, actually, how much longer are we allowed to say that, actually?
2: I think we're still... It's quite early still, so we can say it, Seb.
1: So it is a new year. It's 2022. Does that mean that we're in Blade Runner now? Having said that, we're starting our year with a bit of a look back. COP26 was billed as a pivotal moment in the fight against climate change. There are already rumblings about the importance of COP27 next November, And last year I spent a few days in Glasgow during the event in November catching up with various individuals on their take on where we are now and in particular the link between the circular economy and climate change. Later on we'll be hearing from a couple of businesses or representatives from businesses in different sectors on how they're making and trying to apply this important link. But first up, let's hear from someone who I believe you're a huge fan of, Lara.
2: Yes, I am very excited, Seb, because Johan's work has been taken up by many, like Kate Rayworth, who happens to be the author of Donut Economics, and you know I really like her work. She used his work to develop her framework to solve our social and environmental challenges. So how did your conversation with him go?
1: I'm enormously grateful that Johan Rockström was able to spare a bit of time to speak with me for the small percentage of our listeners who are not familiar Johan Rockström is best known for identifying and popularising the concept of planetary boundaries, a set of environmental limits that we cannot cross. In our conversation, I asked him for a bit of an update on where we are with those boundaries, how optimistic he is and his view on the role the circular economy can play in averting a climate crisis while still ensuring prosperity and economic development. Johan, great. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, for the very small percentage of our audience who maybe don't know too much about your work, um, you're, one of the things you're best known for is this notion of planetary boundaries. Could you give us a sort of 30 second overview of what that is?
3: Yeah, so, the planetary boundaries is, a, is an Earth system science approach to try and identify the, the big processes like the climate system, biodiversity, the nitrogen cycle, water cycle that scientifically we know regulates the state of the planet. And for each of these systems, each of these planetary boundaries, define a scientific target or boundary level within which we get a safe operating space. We have a high likelihood of remaining on a stable, resilient planet, but beyond which we start having risks of crossing tipping points and triggering irreversible changes that would, you know, make us drift away from a state of the planet that can really Support humanity as we wish. So it's a it's a guide for sustainability in the Anthropocene.
1: And when you first published this research um, quite some time ago, a couple of those boundaries are being tipped. But more recently, the picture is sort of less promising.
3: Mm. Yes, we published the Planetary Boundary Science the first time in 2009 we already then then actually uh, concluded that the planetary climate boundary is uh, slightly below 1.5 degrees celsius but very close to to what we in the end you know 6 years later agreed in paris so we had already you know scientific evidence has been around at least for you know better part of 10 15 years that cross you you, you come beyond a 1.5 point we start coming into a danger zone in terms of risks of triggering or crossing tipping points. But the most important, I would argue, the plant boundary science is that it shows that we have to have a net zero loss of biodiversity because if you lose ecological functions in the living ecosystems, you lose carbon sink capacities, you lose carbon stocks, you lose moisture feedback, you lose many of the ecosystem functions that, that we as humans depend on for our own livelihoods. So the planted boundary uh, results already at the 2009 paper show that four of the nine boundaries were you know transgressed. So this is climate, obviously, but also biodiversity, nitrogen and phosphorus, and, and land system change. And land system change is really dramatic because that's the boundary, you know, how much of intact forests are we able to keep in order to serve humanity and, and stability in the planet. Now we know that by losing more forest we also risk having impacts on the climate boundary. So, so the, the insight scientifically is that they're all interconnected. So if you go into the red on biodiversity, nitrogen and land, you're very likely to have feedbacks that makes it more difficult for us to meet the climate boundary. So it's like... All for one, one for all. It's it's a three-musketeers approach to the planetary boundaries.
1: Now, it's not all bad news because I just heard you on stage, you're here at the New York Times Climate Hub in Glasgow, say that actually, purely on a biological, physical sense, it's completely achievable for us to hit the 1.5 degree target to get within the planetary boundaries. The challenge is actually more social and economic.
3: Well, I, I like your interpretation of completely feasible. <laughs> um, that sounds like it's, a, it's an easy ride. It is not an easy ride. Uh, what I said is really that it's, it's still, from, from a pure natural science perspective, still possible. Uh, if we can keep the resilience in our living biosphere intact on land and in the ocean, and if we can decarbonize according to what I call the carbon law, which is cut emissions by half every decade, reach a zero point in 30 years time, then scientifically, uh what we know today it's still possible the drama is that it doesn't look so probable given the the political situation in the world that we're not not bending the curves fast enough so you're right it's a what has to be clear that i i would conclude like this it's necessary to aim as close as possible to 1.5 it's still possible the window is still open but but barely (laughs) Is it probable? Do we, do we see signs of leadership that would take us to that safe landing zone? For the moment, the answer is no. And that's why we need to ramp up the, the speed of that transition.
1: And so we you know we need an economic transformation. I guess my last question to you, Johan, is what role do you see the circular economy playing in terms of connecting the dots between circular economy and mitigating the climate crisis, staying within planetary boundaries?
3: The circular economy plays a fundamental role. I mean, we've come to this, um, you know, new situation for humanity and for the world economy that we are not only recognizing that there are planetary boundaries, we're also recognizing that we're coming very close to hitting those boundaries, and we've transgressed several of them. So now we need to, you know, do a big trick, which is economic development within planetary boundaries, within the safe operating space. The only way to do that is to ensure that economic development stays within finite budgets. So of course, the linear economic model we have today where you just exploit, add value, and then create waste is, is not going to take us to the future. The future must be circular, the future must be more regenerative, it must be more restorative. We cannot have 100% circularity on all energy flows and material flows, but we can come uh, as as you show in the Ellen MacArthur Foundation very close. And that this has better outcomes for both economy, health and security. So it's not only about planetary stability if you want to really, you know, create good life conditions for 10 billion co-citizens in the world you know, by, by mid-century and, and really achieve the Sustainable Development Goals, you need to invest in, in, in circular economic models, because it's completely naive to think that the solution is to shut down the economy. I mean, we showed that in the pandemic. That led actually to to bending the curve temporarily of climate emissions. We had a 6% reduction of emissions. Roughly the pace, by the way, we have to follow now all the way down to zero. But was that a good thing absolutely not it was a complete disaster people lost jobs the economy was shut down everything was just creating problems so of course we show that that, that the pandemic is a perfect proof that the linear economy cannot take us to sustainability and that's where the circularity comes in
1: yeah and thank you so much for joining us in the Circular economy cafe
3: pleasure to be with you
1: amazing to hear from such a leading thinker few people speak with such clarity about the problem, but also the scale of the solutions needed. I really liked what he said about the need to pull off that trick of continuing to generate prosperity whilst halting our negative impacts on the environment. So if you're a large business dependent on processing raw materials, what role can you play in this shift? I was able to catch up with Walter Van Tol from packaging firm Dear Smith on precisely this question. Vauter, thanks for joining us here in the Circular Economy Cafe. Um, DS Smith have got a circular economy strategy. You've obviously got circular economy targets, climate positive targets. How do you connect the dots between your action on climate and the circular economy?
4: Yeah, thank you, Seb. So the the first of all, we need to say Ellen Macarthur did a piece of research which said that to address climate change, fifty five percent of the equation is about renewable energy, forty five percent is about how we make and consume and dispose of products as the circular economy. And you need to do both. So first of all, at Dia Smith, we do both. But if I just focus on the circular economy piece for a moment, it's actually a combination of really small things. So we uh, the design phase is the most important phase of all. And all our designers are trained on our circular des- design principles. And what they do is, together with customers, they essentially make decisions about millimeters, that have huge consequences. Because if you design out waste, you minimize waste, and you make more space, uh, you, you minimize the amount of fiber that is used, still keep the strength of the packaging, but you minimize the amount of fiber that's used, that makes a difference. If you redesign the pack slightly so that you need fewer pellets, and therefore fewer trucks on the road, all those sorts of things make a difference on climate. And if you then multiply that by millions and millions and millions of packs, then suddenly you've made a really big impact. So that is important. Of course, we're also looking at plastic replacement. That is another important way of, uh, of, uh, of, of uh, achieving impact. But it's the small, Design decisions multiplied by millions of packs. That's what really makes a difference for climate.
1: And um, I love the emphasis on design. You know, we talk about the really crucial role that design plays in doing a circular economy. We need to move up, innovate upstream versus trying to deal with a problem that's kind of been created by bad design decisions or mm-hmm. design decisions haven't accounted for things like climate. Yeah. and you've talked about the impact that you know small design decisions can have and that's really interesting as well and what we talk about a lot of the foundation is this notion of zooming in and zooming out so in some ways what you've described there the kind of zoomed in version at a zoomed out level how crucial is the notion of collaboration because we also need to innovate the system, Um, and one of the things that's a big topic of COP right now is this notion that um, of course policymakers need to step up, businesses need to set ambitions and goals and
4: measurable targets, time-bound targets, and they also need to collaborate together. Yeah, well it's great that we're here together because Ellen MacArthur Foundation, if you're a representative of that, are brilliant at zooming out, fantastic at systems thinking. Dear Smith, as you just said to me, brilliant at zooming in, product level. And it's when you bring those two together that that's something beautiful can can happen. Uh, sometimes it's a bit uncomfortable because we talk a different language uh, and we we look at different things. But if you work together closely and you put the hard miles in to come up with solutions, then suddenly you find something beautiful happens. So I think the best example is the circular design metrics, which would never have happened without the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, but also would never have happened without the expertise from... D. Smith. And what, that, what the circular design metrics uh, do is it gives customers the ability to change their products and to understand beforehand what design changes, what kind of impact that has on a number of different criteria. Not just carbon, because if you designed only for carbon, you'd make some really weird choices. That would be really bad for the world. But on eight different metrics. And um, that really has transformed how we can work with customers on a circular economy. And it would never have happened without Ella MacArthur Foundation and D.S. Smith working together in a partnership.
1: And um, it's interesting you're talking about almost the
4: interconnectedness of issues there. Because you're right, in some ways, if we
1: design only with one metric in mind, and you've talked about the kind of wheel of metrics that D.S. Smith have, oh. the the outcomes might be strange. I mean one, one example is that is the kind of resource efficiency efficiency agenda which has been taking material out and out and out which is good to a point but there's also about the quality of the product at the end of life. Another one of these interconnected issues is biodiversity and it's an interesting topic I guess for your organisation make a lot of cardboard paper as a as a uh, raw material very important. What's the strategy for Dean Smith on rebuilding biodiversity?
4: Well, the first thing to say is that it's incredibly important that the natural resource of wood fiber is reused as many times as possible. And so it's really important for us to recycle. We pick up more recycled paper than we use for our own operations, so that in itself is sort of a, a, positive, uh, a positive impact. Because the more often we reuse these fibers, the, the more we recycle, the less pressure there is on the forest. So I don't want that uh, that recycled fiber to end up in landfill or in incineration because it's a waste we need to close that loop and governments need to help us close that loop by encouraging better collection and better uh, recycling infrastructure and then if we do that we can keep using the fibers more and more often so that is one thing and ultimately that helps forests and it helps biodiversity and I thought it was really interesting what you said about the. uh, if you only look at one metric, the wrong choices you can make. And one of the things is some customers and some companies look at uh, craft paper, that is basically virgin paper, straight from the, made from the tree, not recycled. And that's lower carbon, guess why? Because it's made with parts of the tree, so made with biomass, that's where the heat came from to make the paper. So if you then calculate it, it looks low carbon. Great, you'd think let's, let's all use virgin paper. But can you imagine what a horrible impact it would have on the world? How much pressure it would put on the forest and how much it would uh, put pressure on biodiversity. So really I come back to that recycling of paper is incredibly important and, uh, and that will help biodiversity in itself. I'd also love to talk about the 100 biodiversity projects we've started around our sites uh, and and and, uh, uh, but I, I think let's stay on the systems level because that's where we uh, where we like to focus.
1: Yeah, like that that notion of like how do in some ways it's, um, I mean again like the the packaging topic is huge right in terms of plastic packaging substitutes. It's the systems approach has a company like DS Smith become almost nature positive is the kind of question you're getting at there. Um, I guess my final question to you, Walter, is. Um, where does the ambition level need to be raised in industry? Like you know, we, we talked about some of the things that are going well in this conversation. Hopefully some of the positive steps forward that are being taken at events like this. When do you look out in the landscape and you think we as an industry need to raise the ambition level?
4: Well, on a, on a very basic level, um, if I look at the recycling rate of paper and card especially in the UK, but also more, more widely, uh, I think about North America. I think to some extent in, in Europe, I think we can do much, much better. And uh, there's a, um, actually a, a cross-value chain initiative called Forever Green, which is trying to get to 90% recycling of paper and card, which is, uh, if, you know, if we reach that, that is really going to close so many material loops that it's going to be a massive step forward. And so if we can all get behind that, and most importantly, if governments and local authorities can get behind that and have a segregated collection and recycling of uh, paper and board, then we're going to be in a much, much better place.
1: Great. Thank you, Valtas, so much for joining us here in the cafe. Thank you, Seb. It won't be easy, obviously, and it's clear that the ambition level needs to be raised... But we need to fix the economy to fix the climate and we need to do it by design. And as Vauter and I just discussed, we need to understand how these issues interlink. How does a business dependent on paper address biodiversity loss, for instance? In the final conversation in this podcast, I catch up with a business that doesn't have a material footprint hardly at all. Stephen Jamieson is the circular economy lead at digital services company SAP. So who are SAP? And what is their role in this story? Don't worry, those are the exact questions I asked Stephen. Stephen, thank you so much for joining us in the Circle Economy Cafe here at the New York Times Climate Hub um, at COP26 in Glasgow. Um, I wondered if first you could just tell us a little bit about yourself. You're working at SAP. How'd that come about
0: yeah, so, well, thank you for having me, first of all. So, yes, you're right. I'm at SAP, uh, Global Head of Circular Economy Solutions. been at SAP for about 10 years, and I've been around the SAP community and the ecosystem uh, for l- longer than that, should we say. Um, and, uh, you know, my sort of focus and interest on circular economy really started about four or five years ago when we were looking at the... The, the plastics crisis, first and foremost. You know, my daughter came to me one day and said, you know, Daddy, why aren't you doing something? And she couldn't sleep at night because of what we, you know, she'd seen on Blue Planet. And um, and I thought, well, actually, we at SAP, our systems touch 77% of everything that's bought and sold in the world. You know, almost every material, you know, we talk about the 100 billion tons of materials, don't we? And almost every material comes uh, and tracks that through an SAP system at some point. And I thought, you know, we've got this incredible benign opportunity to work with our customers to figure out the insights and the transparency and the collaboration opportunities that we can bring to bear in order to spark the innovation that ultimately delivers upon you know our now goal of regenerative business within a circular economy
1: and i mean like some of our audience might be surprised by the scale of influence of sap this is a question i've always wanted to ask someone from sap what does sap do
0: well, fundamentally, we are a business applications business which um, provides the you know, transaction systems that operates much of the world's buying, purchasing, um, manufacturing, logistics, uh, supply chain, uh, marketing, selling of, of products. So it's the, it's the business operating system, if you like, of much of the world's uh, business. And so uh, you know, we have this uh, opportunity as a result of that to really help lubricate the ecosystems of business that can ultimately find solutions to so many of our great sustainability challenges. Kind of like the invisible digital infrastructure that
1: helps much of this run.
0: Quite possibly. It's a sort of benign actor, which, um, you know, we think we've got a great opportunity to make a little bit more active in order to find those solutions. So
1: what's um, the approach to the circular economy? That's your role. What is SAP doing in the circular economy space?
0: Yeah, so this is something that we've been exploring now for a number of years. Um, And we are, first and foremost, you know, we're very mindful of our broader global objectives. You know, as a collection of of partners with the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, we're really rooted in this idea of driving regenerative business in a circular economy. Um, But we're very much, you know, a commercial organization. We're working closely with the most ambitious enterprises around the world. Uh, in order to be able to deliver upon that vision and working with their commitments and their ambitions uh, and working out how we collectively execute that you know, using digital technologies. So we're focusing on solutions that um, really align to the, you know, the three big priorities, right? How we help eliminate waste, how we help circulate materials and how we help regenerate natural systems. Um, and so we are in the process of launching solutions that... Uh, really help businesses to to really deliver practically on each one of those pieces. Uh, So we've recently launched SAP Responsible Design and Production, which is all about how you take the level playing field demand around extended producer responsibility, plastic taxes and make that really simple for businesses to be able to respond to. uh, And also to use the insights of what those um, obligations mean for business. And to be able to leverage those insights into design processes, and be able to understand the impact of different material choices, both upstream and downstream, uh, and then be able to, you know, pivot the portfolio to something more regenerative.
1: Is that effectively by providing? Are you, is it is your role there kind of providing the data or software to kind of explore and design? Is that what is that the fair?
0: I think the the place to start your the thinking from is a lot of this is already there. Right, Businesses are already managing these materials and these assets. But what's happening is the right people don't necessarily have that right information at the right point in time. Um, so not every CPG company has the atomic details of what material is used in every piece of packaging, for example. But somewhere in the supply chain, that knowledge exists. And often that's in an SAP system. So the principle of what we're doing is really how to bring those data assets that exist already into something that's actually usable by the businesses that can use that information to you know, drive and innovate new solutions. So initially, it's about providing the insight. It's about providing that understanding of what's the implication of tax and EPR. But then it's about how you use that insight to feed into design processes. Uh, so whether you're you know, doing some analysis and scenario planning around uh, you know what materials to use over a period of time. Uh, whether you're looking at uh, looking at the overall product costing of a solution, whether you're designing uh, a new pump or a new asset or something, uh, you know, we're pr- applying these insights into the applications where those decisions are made, uh, so that you
1: know action can ultimately be taken. And this this might be a stupid question. It probably is a stupid question, but is that really hard to do? Like for some people, you know, who don't necessarily have insight into this space. How much of a radical shift is that in the way that SAP is working with its partners or working on its you know, technology?
0: I think, I think there's, a, there's, a, there's an evolution of the maturity of what, what needs to happen here. You know, I think typically we would have you know, taken uh, our queue exactly from the customer requirement and only the customer requirement uh, and made sure that we were delivering for industry solutions specific to what those industries require. And I think the difference now is that we're looking at not just that, which is clearly still key uh, but it's also looking beyond the horizon and looking to this broader objective of of saying well okay you know yes your priority might be x in the cpg industry uh, but in the packaging industry we also need to think about you know um, a topic a slightly different way and maybe waste management need to understand uh, the output of some of these materials so we're starting to take uh, not just the view of an individual customer or business, but also looking at it in that broader context and opening up that
1: you know ecosystem collaboration. We're here in this like, really lovely Circle Economy Cafe space in Glasgow at COP26. What's the connection that SAP is making between your strategy, your Circle Economy strategy, and this kind of wider story of the climate crisis? How do we mitigate against climate change?
0: Yeah, I mean, look, this is all key at the end of the day. And we the way we see it is it all comes down to materials. Um, and the the, the implication of different materials in different contexts. Uh, So whether we're talking about, you know, a a paper wrapper for a product or whether we're talking about the actual ingredients in a particular, you know, foodstuff, whether it be palm oil or soy, each one of those materials has got a, a, a footprint, whether it's a CO2 footprint, whether it's a biodiversity impact footprint, whether it's a recyclability in a circular economy Uh, you know, style footprint, waste footprint, if you like. Um, Each one of those things has a story to tell. And our focus in SAP is to say, well, yes, we need to um, understand, you know, the recyclability of different materials in order to reduce the waste agenda. But while we're doing that, let's also bring on board what the CO2 impact is. And let's start to use technologies that we have. For example, we've been innovating Around uh, in, with some blockchain technologies uh, in order to be able to understand co-mingled commodities so we can understand the ultimate land use impact uh, of different um, uh, of, of different foodstuffs, so whether it's something that's come from a regenerative source, whether it's something that's come from a less sustainable source, and be able to understand those co-mingled commodities through the supply chain. So it's really about bringing all of those different disciplines together so that business leaders and R&D specialists and packaging technologists actually have that full system context and full system transparency in order to be able to make the most sustainable choices possible. And this is the real opportunity. It's how to bring all of that insight together quickly at scale so that business can start to lead the way in a way that is truly sustainable.
1: Stephen, thanks so much for joining us in the Circle Economy Cafe. Real pleasure to be here.
2: Wow, Seb, that was quite the whirlwind tour. And it seems like you had a great
1: time in Glasgow, right? That's right, Lara, I thought I was on top form.
2: <laughs> well, we've heard a little bit about the big idea with Johan. We've explored what this means for a large business that, is still, that still needs to thrive whilst taking you know, these important steps. And we've also explored the potential role that digital technologies can play in helping all of that to scale.
1: It's just a taster of the diverse range of conversations, but there is a confluence of organisations across the academic policy and business sectors really trying to answer this question. And that vibe did come across during my time in Glasgow.
2: And it will definitely come across uh, all our episodes that we are going to be publishing this year, Seb. We should remind our audience that we're going to have one podcast coming out every week. But fortunately, that's all we have time for in this episode of the Circular Economy Show podcast. The best way that people listening to us can stay up to date with our content is to subscribe or to follow us on the channels that we have at the Eleva Foundation, including the platform where they are listening to this podcast. Any final wise words, Seb?
1: I can never follow up your fantastic closing, Lara. So that's all for this week. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back again next week.
3: Thanks for listening to the Ellen MacArthur Foundation Circular Economy podcast. Don't forget to share, rate and subscribe.